As president of the ABC Canada Literacy Foundation, Canada's private sector voice championing adult literacy, Margaret Eaton developed a new strategy to reinvigorate the organization, placing a renewed emphasis on adult and workplace literacy. Previous positions include executive director of the Association of Canadian Publishers and general manager of the Canadian Magazine Publishers Association, now Magazines Canada. She also held uh, positions in fundraising and marketing for performing arts organizations. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. We like books on this radio program. You were in Ottawa for, among other things, a public forum entitled A Passion for Reading. The question that immediately comes to mind is the impact that technology and media has had on the shortening of attention span, the way that letters have shrunk down to emails and blogs now have shrunken down to the, mm. the Twitter phenomenon where there's just one-liners right. that go out all day long. And I, and I just wonder, first of all, because you are involved in literacy, is this going to sort of dry up the market for book publishers? I, I don't think that it will dry up. I think it changes it. I, I went to a great uh, session put on by BookNet Canada talking about the future of the book. And one of the things that really resonated with me is they said the most important relationship is the writer and the reader. And how the, the writer gets to the reader used to be, you know, agent, publisher, distributor, retailer. And now because of the Internet, we can cut out all of that stuff in the middle. We can go directly from writer to reader. And so it seems to me that what's essential about writing and, and the stories and the information that gets passed on to the reader, that can be transmitted in many, many different ways and different forms. And I think we're seeing that now. And I know in the publishing industry, people are just racing to digitize what they've got. Whether that changes the nature of the book, I, I wonder if we will see that, though, because so often format impacts on what the final result is. And at this, at this same session that BookNet put on, they were talking about digitized books that you can get in Japan that you buy at the subway station, and you put them on your cell phone. And people write for that format. So they write short sentences. It, it's material geared towards teenage girls because that's the big market for it. And people have had huge bestsellers. Uh, of stories, novellas in effect, but they're written for cell phone. Mm -hmm. So does that in fact mean that what we write does change over time? But at the same time, I can't help but think that there's still, there's still a tremendous audience for long-form journalism, for the deep and complex novel, and things that perhaps are best communicated in a printed form. One of the things that's disturbing, though, from from the writer's perspective, is you know the fact that the newspaper business and the and the publishing business seems to be in crisis, I don't think is too yeah. strong a word. Just simply because there's so many writers, as you say, can set up a, a blog and connect directly with their readers, but the, the problem for them is they're not getting paid for this. The problem for the writers yeah. and the problem for the newspapers is people are going in droves away from newspapers to mm -hmm. sort of niche writing. Absolutely. Uh, and it's just not costing them anything. So No. And this is what concerns me, is we haven't figured out what's the economic model. What's the business model for this that will still reward writers? It, writers have really been given short shrift through this whole digital 
evolution where, you know, there was that whole debate with, I believe it was with CP, about the fact that they weren't actually even paying writers for the digital rights for their material. It was just assumed, well, you wrote it for us, we own it. And so writers have really had to step up to the plate to ask for, for what is rightfully theirs. And in the magazine business, writers, uh, Derek Finkel has just led the charge to create a new kind of agency for freelance magazine writers because they've been getting a dollar a word since time immemorial, and a lot of them are making a, a lot less, in fact. And, and in fact, it does seem that the digital world puts pressure on writers to, to come up with more for less. Mm-hmm. which really isn't fair. And so, but I think at the same time, publishers are struggling with this too. They haven't figured out what the economic model is and how to make money. And we've seen this with different kinds of, web, you know, the New York Times recently online unlocked all of their yeah. data because the, the model of actually paying a subscription fee wasn't working. I get the Globe and Mail every day. I think it's like, you know, it's a couple hundred bucks each year, uh, but it's my great pleasure but I'm finding I'm much more in the minority. I was asking my staff about this. You know, does anybody here get a paper? Not a soul. Yeah. And they were reading it online first thing in the morning, and it's free. The thing about the Globe and Mail, though, online is mm. not free. Uh, well, it's still locked yeah. up, parts of it anyway, although they've unlocked quite a bit of it that they hadn't locked before. And now that we're seeing, we're in an, an advertising decline right now as well, where I know magazines and newspapers have really been hit. So without that benefit of advertising, it means there's even less revenue to be made on, on a print version and on an online version. One of our board members was saying, it's probably 2011 before we get out of this economic recession, but when we get out of it, it's not, the, it's not like the world is going to go back to the way it was in 2008 or 2007. It's going to be a very different world, and I'm afraid we're going to see some of this shakeout in the media and in publishing as well. It, it's more of a challenge for the advertisers because... They, there's so many different little opportunities or sources or outlets where readers live yeah. that they have to sort of seek out and find and then negotiate with hundreds of different websites as opposed to just going to the Globe and Mail and saying, well, we've got you know, 300,000 readers or whatever it happens to be. Oh, it's so true. You know, it used to be that you just put your TV ad in prime time and you, you reach millions of people. Mm-hmm. But it's such a fragmented media market now that, yeah, it, it does get tougher for advertisers. But I know a lot of, like Procter & Gamble has really pulled back on its television advertising and it's doing much more print because it's trying to get at its niche audience mm-hmm. and it's finding magazines online uh, are the places to go. As it pertains then to to what you're doing with the uh, now ABC Foundation. ABC Canada Literacy Foundation. Your objective, you're first of all, your private sector, any organization that benefits from from a, uh, a more literate workforce is going to support what you do. And any organization that benefits from curious yeah, from people reading. Readers. So that's where your funding comes from? About 60-70% of our funding comes from uh, corporate sponsorship. And the organization was actually started back in 1990 to celebrate the International Year of Literacy. The idea being that we needed to bring together people who have a real vested interest in literacy. So it was started by Paul Jones, who was the publisher of Maclean's magazine, and Bill Ardell, who used to own Coles and then went on to Southern. People who really rely on readers. And they had a real sense of urgency about increasing the literacy levels of adult Canadians. The idea of the organization is to use the power of the private sector to try to influence people to do more about literacy, including governments. There's an advocacy role as well. How's it going? It's funny. This recession creates opportunity for us. In Canada, you know, we've traditionally relied, our economies relied on 
natural resources, on forestry, on manufacturing, on mining. And these are all the areas that have been most hard hit. So we're very concerned about people who are losing their jobs, people who perhaps had low literacy skills in jobs that didn't really require high literacy. But these are pretty well-paying jobs. And so we're very concerned there's a shakeout right now. And uh, we met with someone from the Ontario Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities, and they said in Ontario right now, we can't predict what's going to happen. They just said, this is a labor market like no other. And so they've brought in the second career strategy, which is to take people who are unemployed from these sectors while they're on EI to provide them with retraining so that they have the basic skills that they need to get the next job. People don't have the, the literacy skills that they need. When you say people, is it like 30% of the population? Yeah, I was just going to say, according to the IELTS study, which is an international study, about 42% of people have literacy that would be below a uh, high school education. And internationally, for a Western nation, the OECD recommends everybody be at about level three. So there's about 42% of the population at level one and level two. So that's everybody from people who can't really decode at all. That's about three or 4% of the Canadian population who we would have in the past called illiterate to you know people reading at about a grade 10 or 11 level. And that's sufficient for a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. But as the economy changes and those jobs disappear, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where do you go in, in what's becoming much more of a service-based economy, uh, an information-based economy? So that's where, you know, one of our big strategies is to get people while they're employed to help them with their literacy skills in the workplace, which is a great place to get trained. You're already there. And my favorite example of this is in the Diamond Mines in Northwest Territories, where they've had a largely Aboriginal population that hasn't been well served by education at all, as we know. There aren't a lot of people up there, so you've got to train who you've got. They've set up basic skills programs for people to prepare them for the jobs that they'll have in the mine, and it's been tremendously successful. So successful, in fact, that people from Fort McMurray are coming to poach their staff in Yellowknife. I think more and more that's what we're, we're going to see is companies realizing that you have to work with the population you've got. Mm -hmm. They may not have the skills. And so it, it behooves the company to invest in, in improving those literacy skills. I wonder if there's a correlation between book sales and improvement in the literacy Project like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I've, I've not looked at that. It would be very interesting to look at um, populations that have high literacy. Um, and on these international uh, scales, it tends to be the Scandinavians. You know, they're always better than us Canadians, it seems. Um, but to look at a country like Norway um, and see what their, their book, book reading and book sales are like, because they have higher literacy than we do. But even in the Northwest Territory. Oh, I see, yeah. If there's been a, a corollary of increased book sales as a result of that, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It was interesting, one of the people that spoke at the Art Matters session yesterday uh, runs a book fair, a Salon de Livre in Sudbury, mm -hmm. and it's all Franco, uh, Francophone books for Franco-Ontarians. Mm -hmm. And Sudbury, you know, you wouldn't think would draw this, but they had 30,000 people participate in their events. And it drew from people around the province, and there was just a hunger to have books in their own language for their own culture mm -hmm. that wasn't being met in that community. And since that time, two Francophone bookstores have opened up in Sudbury. So you see a kind of flowering of appreciation, an untapped demand there. I'm speaking with Margaret Eaton, who is the president of the sorry, ABC Canada Literacy Foundation. Well done. I want to focus on literacy. I don't think the needle has moved that far. For as long as I've been aware of literacy concerns in Canada, there's always been roughly 30 to 40% of the population that, that isn't, as you say, that 
level three tier. I, I just wonder again, because there are so many other alternatives now in terms of entertainment, there isn't the incentive to read. Sure, there's the work incentive, but that's not fun. Where we're going now for entertainment, there's just so many different choices. The impetus to read well, or even just the practice of it. Yeah, and that's one of the things we've seen in the research is the people at lower levels of literacy don't have that culture of reading. And you're right, it's very competitive right now. Books used to be a primary source of entertainment, as was buying sheet music and playing at the piano for all your friends. You know, we've yeah. seen, you know, all of that has sort of changed over time. Kind of a, a more of a participatory yeah. Active rather than passive. Rather than passive, exactly. You would make music, you know, and that's mm -hmm. what people did for, for a pastime. And everyone played. So that sort of changed as well. Um, but I think part of it is, do you have that culture of reading? Did you read as a child with your parents? Was it part of your family experience? And they say it isn't even enough that you read with your child, but that your child sees you reading. Uh, that's just a daily activity. And my stepson, t talking to me about um, his reading, he's in his mid-20s, and he was saying he used to play video games on his Nintendo DS, but he said, you know, a game would be like $36, $37, and you'd get maybe a couple of hours of entertainment. He said, I switched to books because, you know, I spend five bucks for a used book. I get hours of entertainment out of that. And I thought, yeah, it's the value equation, you know, uh, time. You know, just speaking from my own experience, I watched so much television when I was a teenager. Yeah. And you, you almost you have to go through that to get to realize how banal and boring, yes. you know, and mindless it is. Yeah. And, and then uh, hopefully your mind is curious enough to realize that and to find out that, that reading is, is really something that's stimulating. For Family Literacy Day, we, um, we engaged a, a new ad agency to help us come up with our, our sort of slogan for the event. And it was, I, I like this agency a lot. They're very kind of on the edge. And the first thing they came back to us with as a slogan was, kill the tube. This idea that television is the enemy. I don't really like that necessarily. We decided to go away from that and do something else. Our slogan is, if you read with your, your kids, you'll learn more. The idea is to get at those parents who haven't heard the family literacy message, mm. to try to encourage them to, to see the, the benefit in, in reading with your kids. But Such a bonding exercise, oh, too. You know, it's a, yeah. to, you know, really is a motherhood issue. It's just such it a is. lovely way to connect with your child. Yeah, and yet we know... These are older statistics, but it's about 78% of Canadians, Canadian parents, read with their children. There's still 22% out there, mm. and some of whom are not reading probably because they have literacy issues and they don't enjoy reading or not able to. Or embarrassed. Or embarrassed to read aloud. Yeah, exactly, that kind of stuff. And so there are these family literacy programs that actually help people to read with their children. Uh, as a skill. You would think that would be kind of second nature, but for many people it isn't. Right. And there's some instruction involved. I'm hesitant to to name these things as the enemy because my son is nine. He's dyslexic. He's had a, a real struggle to learn to read. And we've, we put him into a tutoring program, so he's reading very well now. But I would say any time where he gets to encounter text and has to decipher it, decode it, is a good moment. And that happens on the computer. Yeah. It happens in comic books. He loves manga right now. And I think all of those are teaching opportunities. Uh, speaking with a, a librarian who's, who's actually an expert on the graphic novel. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that he's done in his library is to introduce a significant 
graphic novel section yeah, and comics because they want to get young boys into the into the library. Yeah. Even if they are going to be a bit noisy. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in fact, at the Art Matters session, all the Governor General's laureates were there, and Nino Ricci was speaking about this and saying, you know, how do we get more boys reading? Mm-hmm. Why is it that more novels are purchased by women than by men? And I think it, it does go back to that culture of reading issue. Were you a boy that grew up with a dad who read? You know, was it modeled for you? Just getting back to the, the type of reading that takes place, it's a, there's a lot more quick hits, which has an impact on the depth of concentration, the sort of mm. the ability to follow long, complicated arguments, or the, mm-hmm. the desire to. And as I say, I wonder what that bodes for the book, per se. Right. That people will not want to um, be challenged by what they read anymore. That that won't be seen as something pleasurable. Yeah, what's pleasurable is sort of these quick, bite-sized right. uh, bits of... That is disturbing. And they do talk about recent reports recently about ch- how children's brains are being changed because of the time that they spend on the computer. It will be fascinating to see how this generation evolves, the first generation that really grew up with computers. And yet I have, I still have hope. <laughs> I still have hope that people want to immerse themselves in the complex argument or the, um, the more challenging read that does engage you in, in a different way. I, I still hope that there's a, a market for that. But I, I share your concern about that at the same time. Yeah, I know uh, people of my generation, I often hear say, well, I don't like to read long things on the Internet. You know, I get, yes. I get, you know, or I, I get tired of that. And um, I, I think that's the beauty of these new readers, the Sony uh, Reader and the Kindle, that actually um, try to recreate the book experience. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated to see if people take that up. I, th- I think more than any time yeah, it's, this it's is happening. its time, yeah. So that idea, too, of having the complete works of, you know, your favorite author at your fingertips yeah. at any time, mm. or reference works, it, it is a kind of fascinating oh, idea. Oh, it's very exciting. The criticism I've heard, though, is, you know, we, we have too many devices now, though. If it just reads books and text, you know, then you've got that, and you've got your cell phone or your Blackberry, and your keys and your wallet, and... You want it, something that's going to... It's going to do it all, yeah, yeah. so... I wonder if that will be the next thing. Is it a phone and it takes pictures and it tells you degrees above sea level and yeah. it's a book? You know. Yeah, and well, yeah. And it's 800 books. It's 800 yeah. books, exactly, yeah. yeah. But the point is that it's still all connected to, to the capacity to read. Yes, so right, right. So all of these wonderful technological innovations are worth squat if... Yeah, if people don't have the skills. And then also if people aren't interested in reading as a pleasurable activity, not just, as you were saying, reading for work. I'd love to see um, brain scans of people, you know, as they're reading to see, you know, are different parts of a a person's brain lighting up when they're reading for pleasure? Um, And do those parts not light up in some people? Because I know know lots of, you know, very smart people, great readers, but reading a book would not be their idea of a a good time. Bertrand Russell once said Mm. that... The best possible thing for a child is for them to be bored. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that they do use their imagination. Right, right. And that's the criticism of, of Disney and all of these movies that the kids flock to. It's, everything is done for them. Yes, And right. I think for sure that the, the, the activity that goes on in your, in your brain 
while you're being fed all of this imaginative stuff mm -hmm. is quite different from your actually participating. Yeah. One of the uh, people in the panel yesterday, a blogger, Carrie, who writes Pickle Me This, was saying that the myth is that uh, reading is a solitary activity. We were chatting about this, but um, she was saying, you know, really, it's this interaction between the, the reader and the writer. And the reader is very active. As you read, you're not just sounding it out, but you're imagining how these voices sound. You're picturing it all in your head. There are many different ways that that, that line could be interpreted. Um, so it's a, it's a very active kind of activity as opposed to things that happen on a screen, perhaps. It's your book. It's your book, yeah. You've made it your own. Yeah, it's, it's unique. And the blogging world adds that other rich layer as well, where I always want to know what other people thought about the book I just read. I want to engage in the conversation or hear other people's thoughts. And that's where the Internet has been you know, so incredible. It's a Creating community. a conversation, yeah. a community, yeah, yeah. which uh -huh. you just wouldn't have had before. Well, and plus, again, it's, it has to do with participation. You read the book, which is per participating, and then you actually write. And it's not just for yourself. It's mm -hmm. for whomever is interested in what you're writing. Yeah. Carrie, yesterday, was talking about uh, authors Googling themselves <laughs> and coming across her work. <laughs> and then that's what she loves. She said, you know, she can put something up and then next day hear from the author. Yes. You yes. know, and that, she said, was one of the most exciting and interesting yeah. parts of what she does is to, you know, have that dialogue with the person who actually wrote it. Amazing. Amazing. It, it really is. It's, it's very exciting and, and a positive aspect of new technology. Absolutely, yeah. So what do you want to do with, you know, how long have you been in your position? Two years. So what do you want to accomplish? We would like to see the literacy levels of Canadians raised. And to do that, we need everybody to participate. So, um... We need parents to be reading to their kids and increasing their own literacy skills through that process. We want workplaces to be supporting the literacy activities of their employees. And we know that government plays an important role. So uh, one of the things that we're working on right now is to find some subsidy in Ontario for workplaces. Because we know in provinces where the government pitches in, usually it's kind of a 50-50 sort of split. Mm -hmm there are really active workplace literacy programs. In, in Manitoba, which has a beautiful program, there's lots of workplaces that are really active. Boeing Canada is one of the leaders that has in-house learning centers for its people, and then they invite people from the community, and it's a, it becomes a family activity. And so we're working on that at the provincial level. At the federal level, we're also looking at a workplace literacy tax credit so that if you provided literacy programs, you would get some kind of tax credit from the government. So we're just trying to see, where, where are all of the supports? How can we um, try through these uh, through public communications, like our Family Literacy Day activity, to get when literacy that, on the radar? The January 27th. That's right. So we're trying to draw media attention for that. We're trying to get a message out across about the importance of literacy and reading. And literacy activities, even with the family. There's lots of things that will engage kids with text and with numeracy as well. So, you know, board games, following a recipe, singing a song, researching something interesting on the Internet. All of those things contribute to literacy. I just recently wrote a piece on, it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it's basically arguing the importance of literary magazines. Mm. People who are, are involved in the arts and, and culture, and a large part of that involves reading, mm -hmm. are just generally better citizens. They help make a, a better society. Yeah. And that's the, an overall 
argument that I imagine is... I think that's so true. There's a whole element of uh, civics in this, that if you can't read, if you can't, or if you have low literacy, are you really participating in the process, or do you kind of throw up your hands and go, oh, I just don't know enough about what's going on to participate? And when we look at, you know, when I think there's 42% of people with lower literacy and only 60% of people vote, you know, there's <laughs> is there a correlation here? And for people at low literacy who tend to be less well-employed, you know, not making the same kind of income, their lives are more vulnerable. And it's hard to break that cycle of poverty. And so civic engagement for that group of people becomes more important, I would say. And part of the whole literacy movement has been, in fact, trying to engage people more in social justice. Be participating in the political process that really would affect their daily lives in terms of the outcomes. Well, the other thing, too, is books are so inexpensive relative to other forms of entertainment. The dollar per hour <laughs> pleasure. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. Yeah. And then you can pass it on to someone else. Well, there's so many fantastic used book sales around, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's all out there. Yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts on the book from your perspective? The it's book. Uh, we think a lot about the role of the book in terms of literacy and how do you get that spark? You know, a lot of us had it as kids. You know, if you're a good reader now, it's probably because when you were seven or eight or maybe even younger, you know, you had that experience of having the flashlight in bed, you know, reading the book, want, not wanting it to end, you know, wanting to, to turn the page and know what happens next. And that, that really improves your fluency, your speed, all of these things that make reading easier. And so much of that is driven by story, I would say. And so um, what we've been looking at is how do you create that for the adult learner? So for someone who maybe had a learning disability but it was never addressed as a, as a child, so they're, they're going through a literacy program and they're increasing their skills, but how do you kind of get them... How do you stoke the fire, fan that, that flame? Um, and so we've been looking at a United Kingdom program called Quick Reads, which uh, commissioned authors, popular novelists and nonfiction writers, to write books for adult learners. And they produced a whole series of novellas. And the results from this program have been spectacular. They have made Binchy, they had Ruth Rendell, Richard Branson, who's a dyslexic, did a biography. The Dragon's Den guys wrote a financial entrepreneurship kind of a book. And they've been great bestsellers in the United Kingdom. And so we're looking at bringing the program here and speaking with, uh, c commissioning popular kind of genre writers, uh, Canadian authors, to write some books for us that would be similarly geared to about a grade 5 to 8 reading level. Mm -hmm. So you have to use very simple language, not a lot of three or four syllable words. Tricky writing exercise, I would say. There can't be a lot of complexity in terms of the story. You have to tell the story very, in a very straightforward kind of manner. But, it, but there has to be a hook. There has to be exactly, yeah. There has to be this magic that makes these exactly. readers who people who wouldn't typically read mm -hmm. get excited about the process. Exactly, yes. And that's the success they've had with the United Kingdom was they did a lot of true crime. The adult learners that were commenting on these books, they went back and asked them, what did you think of these books? And they would say things like, you know, this was the first book I ever read all the way through. And uh, they would say, I love this book. I couldn't put it down. You know, so recreating that experience that maybe many of us had as a younger person, hmm. uh, but for adults. And so we want to bring that program to Canada to, to put those tools into the hands of literacy teachers and, and individuals so that we could kind of create that magical experience for, for someone in adulthood. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What a great idea. Yeah, it's a neat idea, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now I'm thinking of uh, William Deverell. You really oh. need to William Deverell. 
Oh, he's not on our list. That's a great idea. He is. Yeah. And Peter Robinson. Yes, he's on our list. <laughs> and there's someone in Kingston, is it? I'm trying to remember. There was a sci-fi writer. It's they have to write stories that are page turners. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a, a kind of self-help side was very big in the United Kingdom as well, kind of seven steps to financial success sorts of books. Yeah. Very interesting combination of books. And there Sex, was seven steps to... That's a great track. idea, yeah. Written in clear language, that's a terrific yeah. idea, yeah. <laughs> so we're hoping to get that program going in 2009. So you might hear back from us then, Nigel. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well... Uh, I hope it's a page-turning success. Yes, me too. Me too. Thanks very much for your time. Well, thank you, Nigel. Very fun. I've been speaking with uh, Margaret Eaton. She is the president of the ABC Canada Literacy Foundation, based in Toronto. Thanks again. Great.